three, two, one. Hello and thanks for joining us this week on Kentucky Caliber. Our topic this week is going to be the Dobbs case and the Supreme Court ruling, which on last Friday was made public, even though a draft of it had been leaked about a month ago. But this ruling formally overturns Roe v. Wade, which had been long established uh, for almost 50 years. And we're going to be going into some details about the particulars of that case. And I know a lot of folks don't have time to read, you know, a 200-page, it's about 200 pages, a court ruling that has quite a bit of legalese in it. So I can understand why a lot of folks would either be reluctant to go through that or, or simply don't have time. So we're going to help you out a little bit by, by picking out and going through the case itself and uh, highlighting the important sections and giving them a little bit of analysis in terms of uh, not just legality, or the legalese, but also historical context, so we can understand what the ruling is, what it means, and what the impact uh, of the ruling will be on the country as we, we go forward from this day. So I guess um, I, I had a great time on the uh, the Jack Patty show there on Talk Radio 590 AM yesterday morning discussing this very topic, and I, I think we decided um, we're up to our third or our fourth once-in-a-lifetime event uh, just in the past two years. Um, the pandemic definitely counts. This, the, the uh, Dobbs ruling definitely counts. I would argue that the uh, capital attacks on 1-6 counts. So that's, that's three right there, uh, once-in-a-lifetime type of events just in the last uh, two years. Uh, so it's a lot to process. Uh, whether folks think that those events are terrible or fantastic, uh, either way, it's a lot to process. It's a lot to wrap our heads around. So if you feel like you know that so much is changing and, and it almost feels like the, the room is spinning, um, I feel that way too. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I, I do this show is to help try to make sense of some of those things that we see happening and, and just to try to get our, our arms around it and wrap our head around it to better understand it so we can have some idea of, of what we ought to do as we go forward. A lot of As one of the things that we... Um, found out yesterday, and, and I appreciate folks who took the time to, to call in to discuss this, um, a lot of folks were curious as to why this discussion doesn't have the normal arguments that you hear when the subject of abortion comes up, um, specifically when does life begin, what is life, uh, those things really are not the focus of the Dobbs ruling. The Dobbs ruling, which is the one the Supreme Court issued last Friday, is about Legally, who gets to decide whether or not abortion is permissible in the United States? It's not about when life begins. It's not about what does life mean uh, or any of that. Uh, it really doesn't talk much about that at all because it's focused on a legal question, a legal dimension, specifically of who gets to decide whether or not you can, someone can get an abortion if they want one. So that that's the focus of this ruling, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So there won't be... Uh, any detailed discussions about you know when does life begin or what is life because it's not really the f the topic it's not really the focus of this ruling even though of course those things are, are instrumental and, and critical to the subject of abortion in a broader sense in a larger sense but this ruling uh, is more about the legality of it and who gets to decide whether or not 
it can be permitted uh, in this country. Previously, and the Supreme Court ruling in Roe v. Wade had established a precedent which established the fact that there is a constitutional right to abortion, meaning that if women, pregnant women wanted to get one, they could do so and they could not be prohibited by the state governments from obtaining one. This decision rejects that analysis, rejects that ruling, and declares, and we'll get to this in a little bit, that there is no constitutional right to abortion. And that's sort of the, the cornerstone of the Dobbs ruling, which this case is. And we're going to talk about that in more detail. It, it's actually Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health Organization. That's the formal title of the case, which started in Mississippi, which is where that the Jackson's Health Organization is located, Jackson, Mississippi. And so that's that's the reason for that, uh, the name of the, the case. It worked its way through the court system, the previous, the lower level courts, the appellate court, the circuit court, all affirmed uh, Roe v. Wade. And so that's one of the reasons why the, the plaintiffs filed the case, because they wanted a chance to overturn Roe. And the circuit court and the lower courts did not do that. But when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court did do that. And so we really need to look at the underlying rationale for why this, this Supreme Court ruling has been made in order to examine and, and try to forecast what the impact might be on the country's legal system and on health care uh, as we go forward. So the first thing that this ruling does, and it's, it's up front about this, I've got a copy of it here, so you may, if you hear me scrolling through it and let me click on my mouse in the background, that's just me scrolling through the case so I can, I can make sure I get the, the text correct. Um, right on the first page, the, the initial overview, what they call the, the syllabus when you look at the uh, first page of the ruling, Right down there at the bottom it says, and this is uh, Justice Alito writing for the majority, it says, quote, the critical question is whether the Constitution, properly understood, confers a right to obtain an abortion. And just before that, it says in big bold letters, held, quote, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. So that's the finding of this court, and then the subsequent um, written arguments are given in support of that. So we ought to think about, you know, why, what the court is doing here um, when it says that it's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And in order to do that, we have to understand a little bit more about Roe v. Wade itself. So that case, which was decided in the early 1970s, I think 73, did not simply come out of nowhere. It was based on a long history of other precedents, and that's an important concept in, in the law and in legal circles, and law students and law practitioners uh, regard precedent with a, a lot of respect because it carries weight in our legal system. In the case of Roe, you can go back um, all the way to 1874, and that's where the genesis for one of the precedents came from. So I'm going to do that real briefly just so I can give you some historical context. In 1874, there was a gentleman named Comstock who lived in Massachusetts. He was a dry goods salesman by trade, but he had a personal sort of mission. He felt that his mission in life was to stop uh, the publication of what he deemed to be obscene materials from circulating in the mail or being sold in magazine stands or in stores. And so he spent a lot of time and a lot of money lobbying Congress to pass legislation to ban what he called obscene material. 
And eventually, uh, in 1874, his efforts paid off, and Congress did, in fact, decide to pass a law. It's called the Comstock Act. And among other things, it banned the... It did not. It outlawed the the selling or displaying or distribution of materials that were defined as obscene. What they meant by obscene in 1874 was not pornography, but in fact they were talking specifically about contraceptives and advertisements for contraceptives. Merely advertising a medical product at that time was held to be obscene by a certain number of the members of the public, and enough people in Congress agreed with them that they passed the law. Uh, banning those things from being sold or distributed or, or seen by the public. And so eventually, and this took some time, it wasn't until later that um, a married couple from uh, Comstock's own home state in Massachusetts sued on the grounds that this law violated their right to privacy. In other words, the married couple claimed that within the bonds of matrimony, they had an inherent right to decide whether or not they wanted to have children. And that means they had a right to see or purchase contraceptives, which had been banned by the Comstock Law. Well, where did they get this idea of the right to privacy? If you'll read the Constitution, you'll find that that's not in there. There's nothing specifically stated about privacy. Well, in 1890, an individual who is from Kentucky, by the way, and went on to become a Supreme Court justice himself, and is notable for, I think there's a couple of buildings in the School of Law named after him at the University of Louisville, and that uh, person was Louis Brandeis. And in 1890, he co-authored an article entitled, which, which coined the phrase, right to privacy. And what they argued was that under the Constitution, there are certain rights that are explicitly stated, and there are other rights that are not explicitly stated, but they're still there. And one of those is that private citizens have a right to live their lives as they see fit, their private lives. I'm not, they're not talking about you know commerce or business or anything like that, just their private lives. They have a right to live their private lives without government interference. So they have a right to live their private lives free from government interference. And so this article was became widely accepted amongst the, the legal community and amongst legal scholars and jurists and, and even judges and even Supreme Court judges. And so eventually, in, in Griswold v. Connecticut, the Supreme Court held that the married couple was right and that they do have an inherent right to privacy that was being violated by the Comstock Law, which was struck down and declared unconstitutional. And one of the reasons it was declared unconstitutional was because it violated the right to individual privacy. Well, the right to individual privacy was one of the precedents that was used to support the Roe v. Wade ruling, which stated that women have a right to privacy and a right to decide whether or not they want to bear children. So this, you know, childbearing is one of the most intimate, far-reaching, and personal you know, decisions that can ever be made. And I, and I say decision because I'm not talking about uh, rape victims who were forced against their will. Uh, I'm talking about... Uh, the right of women to choose whether or not they want to have children, whether they whether or not they want to engage in childbearing, and so what, that was one of the precedents that Roe used to uh, uphold the right and, and and more specifically state that there is a constitutional right to abortion because it include included within that is the right to privacy. So those are related concepts, and I say all of that because for a simple reason. You can't just say we're going to take out this case 
overturned this case in the past, but it won't have any effect on anything else. By definition, it will. Because of the precedence that case was based on, that means if you're overturning the logic of Roe v. Wade, now all of the precedents that led up to Roe v. Wade are also suspect in the, according to the rationale of this ruling. And at least one member of the ruling majority specifically stated that, and I'm referring to uh, Justice Thomas, who explicitly stated in the text of his own, uh, the rest of the case, you can read the comments made by other justices, and his is one of them, that according to Justice Thomas, you know, not just the right to privacy as it pertains to abortion needs to be revisited, but the court should reconsider a whole bunch of other things that are covered under that, including gay marriage, contraception again comes up, and so according to him, all of those things could now be struck down or could be uh, banned by the court. And so states could go back to banning contraception. They could go back to banning gay marriage. And that's something that Justice Thomas says should be considered now. To be fair, we should also point out that other authors within this same ruling do not support that, even in the majority. And I cite specifically Justice Kavanaugh, who in his own opinion, and you can find this in the ruling as well, uh, and he's part of the majority who voted to overturn Roe, but even he says that he does not support uh, or would not support um, looking into or overturning other aspects of people's personal lives um, based on the same logic. So what he's saying is, if a case came to the Supreme Court saying that you would we're going to ban contraceptives or overturn gay marriage, what Justice Kavanaugh is saying is that he would not vote to support that. So even though he did vote to overturn Roe, he's saying he would not vote, at least in this ruling, he's saying he would not vote to support that. Now, whether we can believe him or not is another story. He, he said under oath that he wasn't going to overturn Roe, and he did. So I don't know if we can believe what he's saying in this ruling or not, but I, all I can do is go by the words. And I know my, my conservative friends will say, well, did he actually say, quote, I will never overturn Roe? No, I don't think he did. But if you read his testimony, he made it pretty clear that he gave that impression. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh repeatedly said it's established law. I'm not the kind of guy who rocks the boat. So he clearly gave the a strong impression that he would not overturn Roe, even though I think all along he, he knew that he would. So whether or not anybody wants to do anything with that, I don't expect anything to come of it. I've, I've heard people talk about impeaching him and other Supreme Court justices for lying under oath. I don't expect that to happen. Um, I really don't. So I, I'm not going to spend any time discussing it because it's it's pretty outlandish and I don't think we'll ever see that happen. The more important, though, is the underlying rationale. So now we're back to, so we've had a little bit of a view of, of precedent. Um, but it goes back even further than that. Because one of the reasons that Alito, writing for the majority, Justice Alito, writing for the majority, says that they can overturn the Roe uh, case is because they make the point that, according to them, well, there's no historical precedent for outlawing abortion until Roe. So the 50 years that it's been, so the 50 years of case law based on Roe doesn't count in their opinion. But if we go back to the 1800s, well, look around, almost every state had laws against abortion. It was a criminal act. So according to Justice Alito, 18th century or 19th century law is more important than 20th century law. He doesn't explain why. He just states it as a fact. Well, a long time ago, it was illegal so therefore, we have no basis for ever making it legal, which is absurd. And it's not the only absurdity that you'll find in this ruling. It's riddled with them. 
Justice Alito's own opinion is riddled with inconsistencies, absurdities, and outright falsehoods. And I'm going to give you some examples. On the subject of history, the, the, the ruling opinion, which is written by Justice Alito, you know, states that we have to be guided by history and tradition, so we have to respect the opinion of the past. In the very next page, and I'll quote you here, the very next page, he writes, and I quote, this court must not be swayed by public opinion. Well, so the opinion of people who are dead are very valuable. The opinion of people who are alive have to be ignored. That's the logic that Samuel Justice Alito is using to overturn this, this case, which is absolutely ridiculous. It makes no sense uh, whatsoever. More concerning, even than that, are the 14th Amendment, which is the Due Process Clause. So this is an amendment that came about after the Civil War. And the, the 14th Amendment states, No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And so what Justice Alito writes is, well, we can't say that liberty includes the right to privacy or the right to obtain an abortion because when the 14th Amendment was passed in, I think, whatever it was, 1868, I think, um, that meaning wasn't understood at that time. So we can only limit ourselves to what the 14th Amendment meant by liberty and due process at the time it was published. So in other words, what, he's, what Justice Alito here is saying is that the clock stopped when this law was passed, that the meaning of liberty and the meaning of the Due Process Clause can only be interpreted by what was meant by it at the time it was passed. So what he's saying is that time stops after a law is passed and, and there's a, a meaning from that time period that is frozen in place forever that we have to respect. Well, that makes absolutely no sense. It's contrary not just to the Constitution, the actual working of the Constitution, but to the spirit of the Constitution too. Thomas Jefferson said that as new discoveries are made, as new truths are uncovered, institutions must change in order to keep pace. The Constitution itself is designed to be changed. That's what the amendment process is. When we pass an amendment to the Constitution, we are changing the supreme law of the land, and that's what the Constitution is. It's the supreme law of the land. We're changing the Constitution. So clearly, if we, we don't have to guess at what the founders meant or what the founders intended when they wrote the Constitution. They told us. We know they meant it to be changed. They meant for the Constitution to be an adaptable document. That is critical because it allows the law to keep pace with technology, with changes in public opinion, and changes in beliefs because we know for a fact that those things change over time. That is clearly established in the record of history. Yet, according to Justice Alito, none of that matters. The clock stops when a law was written and we can only make inferences based on what was acceptable at that time. Well, that should really concern everybody in the United States because there was a time when slavery was legal. And, not surprisingly, its proponents used precisely the same logic in order to support its continued legality at that time. They said, well, we should allow the people's representatives to decide. And that is exactly the wording that is used 
to justify the Dobbs ruling, and I quote, this is Justice Alito, the nation's historical understanding of ordered liberty does not prevent the people's elective representatives from deciding how abortion should be regulated. So what that statement means is that personal liberty is in the hands of elected officials. In other words, it's in the, uh, the hands of the majority opinion. So if the majority says, we don't like your personal life, we can pass a law against it. And this specifically is something that James Madison warned us about in Federalist Number 10, which, in which he described the dangers of factions. And James Madison, writing in the Federalist Number 10, said, By faction, I mean some group of citizens, whether a majority or minority, who are activated or actuated by some common impulse of passion, which is adverse to the rights of other citizens. Well, that is exactly what the so-called pro-life movement is. And by the way, when I say so-called, I'm not trying to be derogatory or condescending. If it sounded that way, that's really not how I meant it. I have friends who are pro-life. I've had friends for a long time who are pro-life. I know that they genuinely believe that, that they are protecting life with this law, and that is one of the reasons why they're so fervently in support of it. But just like James Madison said, some impulse of passion, this particular impulse of passion to the pro-life group, I think, has blinded them to the consequences of rulings like this one. When you can decide, just because you think you have a really good reason, to take away somebody else's liberty, that exact same rationale was used for a very long time to support slavery. That is the, the very rationale that, that pro-slave states used to support it. They said, no, the Constitution can't decide that. The vote decides it. And the people of this state, unsurprisingly, who all believe that slavery was a good thing, well, we voted for it, so therefore we should have it. And that, uh, that point of view believes that the primacy of the vote overrides the protections the Constitution provides to individuals. Well, of course, we know later on when the Civil War was fought and that was changed, and we, we discovered what a, what a terribly immoral belief system that is when you can allow, simply because there's a majority who vote for it, uh, something as horrible as slavery. Uh, there, ha there are limits to what democracy can do and what democracy should be allowed to do. It's not absolute. And, and I'm not saying that the rights of the individual are absolute either, that they're not. They're, you know, free societies have to find a balance and some sensible common ground uh, to live in peace and stability and in accordance with the laws that they have passed in that land. But what he's saying, back to the Dobbs case, is that liberty can be overturned if enough people think that, that an individual shouldn't have it. And that is completely contrary to the right of privacy. It's completely contrary to decades, almost a century, of historical precedent saying exactly the opposite. So what does that mean? I would argue that means that there's going to be a lot of confusion or a lot of new types of court challenges uh, and new cases that are going to be appearing going after things that were already considered to be settled law. So, for example, gay marriage, for example, contraceptives, I think you will probably see challenges to both of those in the court system because they're going to read this ruling and say, aha, the Supreme Court has just told us that we should review and revisit all these precedents that allowed these things to be legal, and now we think there's a basis for them not to be legal. And that basis is we, the people's elected representatives, don't like it, uh, 
So therefore, we're going to sign a piece of paper that says it's illegal in the state at the state level. And I think we'll see that. I, I don't know what the outcome of that will be. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future, so I don't know how the, the court will rule. It's, it's sort of comforting to know that at least some of the majority on the Dobbs case do not sound open to uh, approving challenges to things like gay marriage or, or contraception. John Roberts certainly doesn't. Judge Kavanaugh sounds like he doesn't. The liberal jurist absolutely will not. And so that would seem to indicate that there is not enough votes on the Supreme Court to overturn those things. But we'll have to wait and see. I don't know um, exactly how that will play out. The ruling of this case also leaves the door open for Congress to pass federal legislation codifying the right to abortion because it says that the decision, and I'm quoting again, the decision, quote, must be left to the people's elected representatives as to whether or not abortion should be permitted. Well, that includes Congress. And so Congress, even according to the majority ruling in this case, has the authority to pass a law that says the right of abortion is now codified in federal law. And so I know there's already a movement underway, uh, at least in the House of Representatives and in some of the Senate, to do that. The votes are there in the House. Obviously, President Biden would sign that. The votes are not there in the Senate, as the Senate is currently configured. And so I really don't see a path forward to get enough Republican senators to say they would vote for the codifying of the right to um, abortion because uh, their base, uh, the conservative base, absolutely would not accept that. 75%, this is according to Gallup and Pew data just recently, 75% of conservatives believe that there is there should not be a right to uh, abortion in America. So for conservative senators who need their votes to stay in office, I think it's probably a impossible task to expect them to ever um, support that kind of legislation in Congress. For, for my friends who, who've you know, very fervently want that law to be passed before the elections get uh, take place this November, uh, I would simply ask them, okay, which Republican senators do not want to be reelected? Because that's what, that's what it would come down to. They would essentially end their career if they voted for legislation that codified the right to abortion. So I just, I don't think it's possible that that's going to happen uh, in this Congress. If the Democrats retain enough seats in the House and gain seats in the Senate with this election, if that happens, then we could revisit this uh, when the new Congress is sworn in in January of 2023, and perhaps that would be a way forward. That's an important point. There's really um, there's really three ways that the, the Dobbs versus the Jackson Health Clinic Health Organization can be uh, either nullified or reversed. Uh, federal law which by the ruling itself is, is one way to do it. The second way is a constitutional amendment, which would also codify the right to abortion. And the third way would be another Supreme Court decision that reverses this one. Well, it took 50 years for the Dobbs ruling to reverse Roe. And so I, I would not be surprised at all if a similar amount of time would have to pass before this ruling can be reversed at the level, at the federal level. Um, so for folks who want this to happen in the next four months, uh, as much as I would like for it to happen in that time period too, I really don't see how that's possible. Uh, I just don't see that that's going to happen. This is going to be a long-term, probably multi-generational struggle. And, you know, look at the folks who, who spent, you know, decades pursuing, um, 
the path that led to the overturn of Roe. You know, they've been working and campaigning and, and going to marches and expending a lot of energy and time on this for years and decades. And so now folks who want this ruling to be overturned, and I'm one of them, we got our work cut out for us, and it's going to be a long struggle. You know, I'm 48 years old, so I don't expect that I would live long enough to see this uh, ruling reversed. I mean, if another 50 years, I'll be 98. So I mean, that's that's pretty optimistic. Uh, it's a nice thought. Yeah, sure, I'd love to be you know live to be 98, but that's that's well beyond the average. So I, what I'm saying is. Um, it's going to belong to the young people and to the next generation to uh, to reverse this ruling and to overturn it. And uh, there's a saying in India, blessed are they who plants a tree in whose shade they will never sit. And so that's what those of us who want to see this ruling reversed or nullified, um, that's the work we're going to have to do. We're going to have to try to plant the seeds even though we will never see that tree fully grown ourselves. And And there's good reason why we should do it because this court ruling is contrary to the idea of not only individual and privacy, but the, the concept of the individual itself is put into risk here at our legal system. With this ruling, as long as if, it, if something is not specifically stated in the Constitution and a number enough elected legislators want to take it away from you, according to this ruling, they can. So it's not just abortion that's at risk. You know, Applebee's isn't in the Constitution. So if I want to go have ribs for dinner tonight at Applebee's and the state legislators say, no, we don't think you should be able to eat that. You need to eat a salad. It's better for you. Um, according to this ruling, they have the authority to do that. And so just imagine the range of individual freedoms and individual liberty that are now at risk because of this ruling. And that's what this ruling does. It puts individual freedom and individual liberty, liberty, excuse me, at risk, at risk in the United States because there is a precedent now from the Supreme Court that establishes the primacy of the government over the individual. Because this ruling says, well, this particular aspect of a person's private life isn't really theirs to decide. It's up to the government to decide. Well, you know, that's, that's a very similar line of, of reasoning that was used to keep people in, sla in slavery. They're not really people. They can't really make any decisions for themselves. It's up to the majority. And the majority says, well, they want at that time, well, the majority in certain states said, well, we want slavery. So that's the end of it, um, which considers them not even to be people at all. And so this ruling puts into risk the idea that pregnant women are even people at all. And that means that everybody's individual freedom is at risk. It really is. This ruling is a direct threat to the individual liberty and freedom of every American citizen. I know it's a victory for conservatives, but it's a major defeat for the United States. It really is. And that's how it ought to be viewed. And so I hope people that, that want to overturn this ruling will remember that when they get tired or when they get frustrated or when they get you know ridiculed. And all of those things are going to happen. It's not a might. They are absolutely, definitely going to happen to you if you speak out on behalf of overturning this legislation. Those things will happen, and they will happen frequently. So you can't lose your, um, you can't lose your hope. You can't lose your energy. You got to remember that it's going to be a difficult fight. It's going to be a tough fight. But ultimately, we should stick with it because it's the right fight. It's the right thing to do. And the conservatives are just wrong. And even though they, they constantly want to make the argument about the, the, that the unborn is a life, and so we have to 
outlaw abortion or ban abortion because we're protecting life. That's a distraction. Under our legal system, you cannot use somebody else's body to save a life. You know, thousands of people every year die because they need organ transplants. But the state cannot order you to give them a kidney. Why? Because the state cannot use your body to save somebody else's life. And that, ver- that precise same principle applies to pregnancy. So even if you accept the premise that it's saving a life, you can't use somebody else's body to do it. And that's what this ruling says. It says, oh yes, we can. We can use women's bodies because their bodies don't belong to them. They belong to the majority vote. So they're not even really people. They're only people insofar as the majority allows them to be. So that is very alarming. It's very disturbing. It's a very disturbing ruling. And it should bother everyone in the United States. And they should all work Start begin the work at your local community level, the state level, at the federal level. We have to begin the work of overturning this ruling because it is detrimental to the very foundations of freedom and liberty that this country is built on. And if this ruling is allowed to stand for any length of time, there will be waves, waves, I think, of assault on individual freedoms and liberties far beyond just the decision Uh, as to whether or not to have an abortion. You will find the government coming into your home. You will find the government coming into your private life. And they will tell you that they have the right to do it because it's for your own good. And that's what this ruling allows them to try to do. So we have to fight back against it. It is a moral imperative. It is a moral imperative to fight back against this ruling and to try to get it overturned. Peacefully, I want to add, use the system. Use the system through elected government, through the passage of laws, through popular opinion and persuasion, all of those things, through protest, all of those things are fair game. Violence is not going to help. It's really not going to help. It doesn't help your cause. So, so harming people or damaging property because you're angry about this ruling is not the way to go. For one, those kind of acts are wrong. They're immoral and illegal. And two, they don't help your cause. They hurt your cause. So if you want public opinion on your side... And we do remind them of the importance of individual freedom and liberty in this country. And if you want to protect that, one of the necessary steps is going to be the reversing, overturning, or nullifying of this ruling by the Supreme Court, which puts liberty and freedom in danger. So there's a lot of work to do. It's going to take a long time, and we have to prepare for the long game. Thanks for listening, and I hope everyone has a great day.